Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. And everyone, if I could have you open up Hebrews uh, chapter 2, we're going to finish up in chapter 2 and then blend that right into chapter 3, in which we will probably not get too terribly far in chapter 3, um, but uh, we will definitely start it and definitely look at the first verse in any case. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this evening. And I, just, I just pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and open our ears, just open our inner man that we might receive from you and pour into us, Lord. I pray that you would pour into us a revelation from on high, that you would open heaven for us and just pour out from those windows of heaven a blessing that cannot even be contained. Lord, I thank you for your word in our lives, and I pray that this word would work in our lives and that it would be very practical for our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, yeah, there's new notes for tonight. I don't know how much we'll get through, but what I'm going to be talking about at the beginning was on the last notes. That's okay. So if, if, you, if you remember, just real quick by way of review, that in the beginning we looked at the superior, more excellent revelation of Jesus Christ. And then, as I told you, that Hebrews is built uh, with a series of arguments, each one is based upon the one before, and it's all based and settled in the Scripture. So there are many quotations from the Scripture here, from the Old Testament. And the second argument is that Christ is superior to the angels, and that's what we were looking at last week, maybe the week before too. I kind of get confused with my own notes sometimes, but uh, we're still looking at the end of that here. And then we're going to move on in chapter 3, from verse 1 through to verse 13 of chapter 4 uh, is the third Roman numeral 3 that Christ uh, is superior to Moses. And we'll be looking at his superiority over Moses. And again, I just think you know this, but the way I'm dividing this up, that's just the way I'm dividing it up. Somebody else may divide it up differently. But the, the basic uh, structure of the book is really something that nobody would argue about because it's really quite obvious what, what's being done here. So we're going to be talking about Christ being superior to Moses, uh, beginning with chapter 3. But let's look at chapter 2, verse 14. And I want to read verses 14 through 18. And these are very familiar scriptures. And they are kind of the conclusion of this, this argument, the summing up of everything that's been said about Christ superior to angels. And they have a very important word for us in our lives, a very practical word. It says in verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So we're going to be talking about this word, he partook, uh, to partake, uh, quite a lot this evening. And what we see here is that Christ, who is the Son, He became a slave. And what we're going to see as we go on in this is that the Son became a slave, that from heaven He came down to earth so that we, the slaves to sin, might be made the sons of God. And if you want to put daughters in there because you have a problem with that, go right ahead. It's fine because it means you too. It's not a male thing here, that we become the children of God, the sons of God. And by using the word sons, um, sometimes you get these translations where they'll add in there, and daughters. I didn't really like that very much because there's an important significance to using sons. I mean, it's obviously, I, I told you that there's some really good founded theories that uh, a, a woman, uh, Priscilla, at least took part in writing this, this uh, and perhaps was the main writer of the of the epistle to the, to the Hebrews, and it's obvious it's written to the church, to all the brothers and sisters there. But by using the word sons, it's, there's a, a, a significance to that because it's talking about the inheritors of 
God's inheritance, the inheritors of the kingdom of God. And in their culture and in that day, and even in our culture up to fairly recent times, only a firstborn son could inherit the estate of his father. And so that's what's being referred to here. The, the son became a slave so that the slaves might become sons. Christ participated in our flesh and in our blood. He became a participant. In a few minutes, I'm going to talk about that word and the power of that word. In our flesh and in our blood so that we might participate in his glory. So that we might enter into the fullness of his glory. It's, it's a covenant that he made for us in his blood, the new covenant. So, it says that he did this so that through death, he had to die, Jesus died, he might render powerless him who had the, had, notice it's past tense, him who, a lot of people think the devil has the power of death today, but he doesn't. He is stripped of that power. It says, him who had, had the power of death, that is the devil. And, and continues the thought, why he, he died on the cross, that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The son became a slave so that the slaves might be made sons. For assuredly, it goes on, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. That's what it says in my version. But in the Greek and in King James and some of your versions, it may say, it, it literally says that he may give help to the seed of Abraham, which is also a word packed with meaning, and I would rather they had not written descendant and just use seed. It's a lot better. To the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. A theme that's going to be repeated in Hebrews in chapter 4 and in other place, places. And in chapter 4, verse 15 specifically, it says that he was tempted in all things as we are tempted, yet without sin. And that phrase, yet without sin, isn't there so that we would know, well, that's fine for Jesus. He had the victory, but we sure can't have the victory because we're flawed in many ways. No, it's there for us to understand that he is our champion, that he conquered every sin and every temptation. And make no doubt, have no doubt about it. He feels what you're going through. No matter how depressed you are, no matter how tempted you are, no matter what you're suffering in this life and how you're being tested, no matter how foolish it may seem to other people, it does not seem foolish to Jesus. He understands and he knows because he's been tempted beyond what any of us have ever been tempted. And yet he remained without sin because his purpose was to come and to defeat the enemy, to defeat the one who had the power over death. So Jesus Christ, the eternal, the eternal Son of God, became flesh. He died for our sin in order to break the power of the devil and in order to save the seed of Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 16, and then in verse 29, but the whole context, and just for time's sake, I'm not going to open that and read it, but Paul makes a very strong uh, argument based on the singular form of the word seed. And he says that Jesus is the seed of Abraham because the, the, the promise is not given to the seeds of Abraham, which uh, incidentally is one of those places in Scripture that shows us that every jot and every tittle, as Jesus said, every uh, uh, little letter in the alphabet of the Bible is inspired by God, and it does have meaning. So Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham. And yet here we see that we are the seed of Abraham, but we are the seed of Abraham because we are in Christ Jesus, okay? And that's really important, that the inheritance belongs to us only because it belongs to Jesus. And we are in Christ Jesus. And he came to suffer and to die so that we might know his glory and have that glory in our lives. So notice what it says, how the devil enslaved us, okay? And this is really important. 
because he still tries to enslave us with the same thing today, that he enslaved us under the power of death with a certain instrument that he has, and it's called the fear of death. It's called the fear of death. You know, and every one of us has experienced the fear of death in our lives. And it may not even be physical death. I think every one of us has experienced the fear of physical death also in our lives. And it's not talking about uh, a normal uh, God built into our system fear, like when you see some car coming down your lane head on and you immediately react to that, you know, uh, because you want to save your life, you don't even think about it. That, that's not the kind of fear of death it's talking about. It's talking about that fear of death that enslaves us to death. It keeps us from, from becoming the people that God wants us to become. And that death, we need to understand that that's not just the, the end. You know, when we're talking about death, we think of the end death. But it's all of the little deaths along the way. You know, when you don't want to open up your mouth and speak boldly about the Lord in a certain situation because you know that people are going to laugh at you or make fun of you. You know, maybe at your age, my age, we don't feel that quite as often because we've already been laughed at and made fun of so much that we're just, we're just, we're, we're just immune to it already, perhaps. But, uh, you know, when you're a teenager, I remember that really strong. It was just really hard to be a Christian at school. And I went to a Christian school, and even there, to be so bold about Jesus that I wanted to be, you know, because, because I felt things on the inside, but other people aren't doing that, and I didn't, you know, it was, it was a struggle with the flesh to be the person that I wanted to be on the inside. But it can also be, you know, a fear of losing a job, the fear of losing a marriage, the fear of losing, losing your kids, the fear of losing this thing, or losing your health, or that thing. And people live in this fear all the time, and this, this fear of death is what keeps people enslaved, it says. So Jesus came to break that fear of death off of us. I mean, ultimately, what is there to fear if I've already died in Christ and my life is hidden in him? What could ever be taken away from me if I've already died in, in Christ? There's nothing to fear if I'm doing the will of God and I'm walking according to the plan of God. The safest place I can be on earth is right in the middle of the plan of God for my life. And if that means you lose a job, if that means you lose friends or whatever, it's, it's, it, it doesn't, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter because nobody wants to lose a job or friends, but it doesn't matter in eternity. You know, Jesus said, why do you fear the one who can kill your body when you should fear the one that can not only kill your body but cast your soul into hell for eternal torment? You should fear God and fear God alone. So that's a really important word. And for me, it's personally something that became a, has become a really important revelation in my life. And God always brings me back to this, that if I submit myself to the fear of death, then I become a slave. It shuts me down completely. And it puts me in a position where I'm serving the devil and I'm not serving God, whether I understand that uh, or, 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 or not. So... Those who were enslaved under the power of death, it says, through the fear of death, he's, he's set them free. And he calls us the seed of Abraham because we are in Christ Jesus. Now notice that it says, he does not help the angels, but he helps the seed of Abraham. That's a real important point here in this, in this argument, in summing this whole thing up. The word help, you might have a different translation in English. Mine says help, but in the Greek, it says literally lay hold of. He does not lay hold of the angels, he lays hold of us, okay? And it's talking about laying hold of someone unto salvation. So he does not help angels to be saved. You know, there's no question in the scripture. The devil can never be saved. He's fallen, that's it. The fallen angels, they're not going to be saved. They're judged already. It's a, it's a done deal. They were never created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. They were never given a free will. To make a choice we were given a free will to make a choice jesus did not become an angel and partake in the angelic creation in order to save them he became a man and partook in our flesh and blood in order to save us so in a sense what's being said at the end of this argument is not only is jesus superior to the angels but you if you are in christ 
are also superior to the angels. And there's another thing that brings me personally great comfort in my life. It's the idea of being laid a hold of. That Jesus, you know, he's got me by my shirt. He's got a hold of me. He's not going to let me fall completely as long as I trust in him. I may stumble, I may fall, but I'm going to get back up and I'm going to keep going because he has laid a hold of me. You know, he's, uh, you know, in, in, in sport, uh, in baseball, baseball season, if you've ever seen those first, uh, first base coaches that are standing there, they're screaming, ah, 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 and they're giving little signals and everything like that because the runner is not supposed to look at everything that's happening on the field because if he's looking at the field, he's not going to run straight to the base. But he's supposed to look at that coach, look at that base. If that coach doesn't give him anything else, he runs through first base. He doesn't slow down to stop on first base, does he, if you remember in baseball. He's supposed to run through first base at full speed and then kind of angle to the right and he's safe on first. But if that coach gives him a signal, he trusts that coach. That, tr that coach has laid a hold of him and will lead him all the way home if the other team members cooperate. <laughs> well, this isn't dependent on the other team members. This is dependent on Jesus alone. And he will lead us all the way home because that's how much he loves us. We read last week that he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. That's a powerful word. He is not ashamed to say, you're my brother and you're my friend. In John chapter 14, he said, I do not call you my slaves but I call you my friends because a slave does not know what his master is doing. We talked a lot about that. But you do know, and I reveal to you all things that the Father has revealed uh, unto me. Jesus doesn't keep secrets from us. And Jesus loves us. And he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. And he came and he is today so that we might be saved. So he is called a faithful high priest, a theme that's going to be developed more after the Moses part, when we get to the Aaron part, because it's going to move on to Aaron, that he knows our sin, he knows our temptation, that he's able to help us in all ways. And it says that he made propitiation for our sins. So propitiation is this big word. In English, you could look it up, you can see what it means, but I'm going to tell you what it very simply means. It means that he brought our sins to naught, N-A-U-G-H-T that he annulled our sins, that he brought them to zero, okay? that they don't mean anything anymore in the court of heaven. And it's not just past sins, it's all of our sin. Past, present, future, that's how we count things. God doesn't see things like that. He sees our lives, and he has sanctified us and made us holy. He has become the propitiation for our sins. It's really not difficult to understand the principle of a sacrifice. It's a little bit more difficult for us because we don't do sacrifices anymore, and I don't think we should do sacrifices anymore because Jesus' sacrifice completed that. But, you know, uh, throughout history, and especially in the ancient world, everyone understood the principle of a sacrifice, that one animal or one man will die for the sin of everybody. So the price is paid. Jesus died for our sin. So if the price is paid for something, why would you pay for it again? How foolish would that be? You know, if somebody brought you a present, uh, gave you something that you really like very, very much, let's say they bought you a brand new car from Wild West Chevrolet, and they gave you the receipt, you know, paperwork, and it wasn't even bought on credit, it was paid for 100%, and your name's on the title, would you go down to Wild West Chevrolet and try to, or go to the bank and ask them to give you a loan for that car? That'd be just stupid, and I don't think they would even do it. But even if they would do it, why would you pay for something that's already paid for? Jesus paid the price for our sin. That's what's being say, said here. So there's no reason for us to live in fear anymore. There's no logical reason to be afraid of death. Because that is what keeps us in slavery, and he came to set us free. Amen. So let's go on to chapter 3 now. We're going to spend a lot of time in verse 1, and we're probably just going to do verse 1. But... Verse 1 sets out such important principles that they're really important for the rest of what we're going to read here through to chapter 4, verse 13. We might get a little bit further, but this, this section, or Roman numeral number 3 on your notes, is a, is a new argument. Now, if, you're, if you'll remember, when we did the introduction to this, I told you, probably don't remember this, but I told you that there are 
many places, or I think 12, I don't remember my numbers, but there are several places, we're going to come to them over and over again, where we see in Hebrews, mostly in English, it's translated as therefore. And whenever we see that word, there's going to be a really strong conclusion made that has practical application. In other words, if all of this is true, then this is what you should be doing. This is how you should be living, okay? Like, I've proved the argument to you, now this is what it means for your life. Well, we have not even gotten to one of those yet, okay? But we will, in the middle of this argument in chapter 4, we won't get to it tonight, but we will get to it, and they will build one upon another all the way up until we get to chapter 12, and chapter 12 is the culmination, it's not the last chapter in the book, but it's the culmination of these therefores of what God wants us to hear. So, in chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to begin there. Uh, we're going to be looking at this argument that Christ is superior to Moses. So, the second argument, building on the servant-son correlation of angels to Jesus. Remember we talked about that? That the angels are servants, or we would use the word slaves. It just isn't such a great word to use in, in English because people think of American version of slavery. But again, when we read slaves in the Bible, it's talking about indentured servitude, uh, debt that you had to pay off as a slave. So this correlation between slaves or servants, which are the angels, they have to do what the master tells them to do. They don't understand everything about the will of God. They just fill, fulfill the will of God. And a son, who is Jesus. So both of them serve, but their service is of a different character. Remember that? Do you? Anybody remember that? That the son serves in the house, and the house belongs to the son. So when a son serves his father, just like every parent would like their kids to understand, if you do what I tell you to do, it's actually for your good. Because you're serving this house that someday is going to be yours. That's why you need to clean your room up, take care of it. This is our house. It's not my house, it's your house, parents. You just don't get it yet. You are the inheritor of everything that we have. So, you know, the son serves the father, and he knows the will of the father. The servant or the slave, you know, the house cleaners that come in, they're just doing their job. They're just doing what they're told to do. So, built on that correlation, now the same thing is going to be projected onto Moses and Jesus. And in this argument, Moses will be proven by the scripture to be a servant in God's house, not a son in God's house, but a servant in God's house, while Christ is the son over his house, and therefore, Christ is greater than Moses. And again, that, that's something that I think is a given for us. If I would have just told you, Christ is greater than Moses, everybody would say, yeah, amen, I know that. Because we're Christians, right? But remember, this is being written to Hebrew believers in a time when there's a great deal of pressure on them to return back to the synagogue and reject the church because of the persecution. It's very, very difficult for them. But we live in a day today when most of us would say Christ is greater than Moses, but I, I'm going to be honest with you. I know, plenty of I know plenty of people and have known over the years that say, if you ask them, they'd say they're Christians. But you would think that Buddha is higher than Moses because they're quoting some other thing all the time. I mean, the Jesus. They don't know the Bible. They don't listen to what Jesus says. They don't know the meaning of the things that Jesus says in the gospel but they know the philosophy of Buddha or the philosophy of somebody else. You know, I'm just picking Buddha out of the air, but, you know, the philosophies of this world. So it's still a very valid argument that needs to be made. Christ is the greatest. There is none greater than him. For the Jews, there was no prophet greater than Moses, right? So in making this argument, it's being shown that Christ is greater than any prophet. So let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. I'm just going to read this first verse by itself, and then we're going to be, take it apart a little bit. It says, therefore, and that's not the same therefore that we're coming to, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So I have to stop right there, and we have to look at this idea of being partakers for a few minutes. Okay, so as Christians... It says, we are holy brethren. The word holy could also be translated as saints. I think in the King James it is. 
Most of you understand this, but just in case I want to be clear, you don't become a saint after you're dead when a council in Rome decides that you're a saint. Okay? And I'm not saying some of those people that are called saints are not saints. But you become a saint by being saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. All that saint means is that you are holy, that you have been made holy. And all holy means is that you have been chosen out. You have been set apart, that God loves you and he's chosen you. And you may say, why did he choose me? I don't know why he chose me, but he chose me and he loves me and he, and he cares about me. And that's what the scripture teaches, that the son became the slave so that I, the slave, might be made a son. And so we are called holy, the holy brethren. And it says that we are partakers of a heavenly calling. Now remember when we looked up there in uh, verse 14, we read that he himself likewise, likewise also partook of our flesh and blood, partook of the same, that he had to partake of our flesh and blood. And here it says that we, part, this is really the gist of the whole thing. Here it says that we partake of the heavenly calling. So we partake of the calling that's on the life of Jesus. We partake on, in, in his calling. And when it's talking about calling, we still use this word this way. It means more than just, hey, Danny, I'm over here. How are you doing? Or I called Danny up on the phone. It's a calling in life, right? Your, what's your calling? You know, what's your profession? Or you know, what's the, the dream that you have for your life? Your calling in life. You know, what makes you tick? Who are you really? And so it says that we partake in the calling of Jesus Christ. And if you have any questions about what his calling is, it goes on and tells us he's an apostle and he's the high priest, that we partake in that heavenly calling that he has. So that's, that's a really important concept. He partook in our flesh and blood. The son became a slave so that we might become partakers of his heavenly calling, that the slaves might become sons, that we would share in the inheritance given to Christ in his eternal kingdom. We share in that inheritance today. So, I want to look at some different scriptures and talk about this word partakers. Uh, you can write this down. I can't remember. It might be, I think it is in the notes, but in Greek it's the word metahos. Metahos. And you don't have to remember that word, but what it means, meta is a prefix that we still use, and it means to hold on to something together with other people or with, other, with another person, to be a partaker. Well, it's a really significant word in Scripture that has a lot of theological meaning. I just want to look at some different verses related to it. But before we look at the theological verses, I want to look at a practical verse, okay? Because biblical words are just like our words quite often. They're used with theological meaning in certain Scriptures, but if you can find a Scripture where it's used on, with just an everyday practical meaning how it's just used in the world, in other words, sometimes that really sheds light on what it means, and this is one of those cases. So look with me at Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, we read about Jesus calling his disciples, beginning there with verse 1. Verse one. And you know that when he called a number of these disciples that they were busy fishing. And you know that some of them were brothers with each other, and they worked with their dad. And what they had was a fishing business, okay? And it was kind of an inter-family fishing business, uh, a, co a, a corporation between them, and they would catch fish on the Sea of Galilee. Their dads did it before them. It's like some of these farmers around here, you know, it was passed on down to their sons. The dads and the sons, they worked together, they catch fish, they mend nets, they fix boats. We see all of this in Scripture. It's hard work, it's dirty work, it's work where they work all night sometimes and don't get any sleep at all, right? It's dangerous work. You remember the Sea of Galilee is quite a dangerous sea, and there's a couple of times when they almost drown on the Sea of Galilee. So it's a very, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a man's man's job kind of thing, right? And they, they work. So they catch these fish, they clean the fish, and they sell the fish at market. And I'm assuming, though it's not written here, that all the women in the family are involved in this concern also. Perhaps in the cleaning, the selling, and 
all, all these different things that they did. It's their family business, okay? And it says that Jesus comes, he's calling them, and the whole story that's there, you can read it, you probably know it, and it says in verse 7, so uh, Jesus tells them to put down their nets, and they catch a whole bunch of fish. And in verse 7 it says, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. This word partners in Greek, metahos, the exact same word that we read over in Hebrews 3.1, partakers, okay? And the word literally means, at its basic meaning, it means a partner in business, that we are partners with the heavenly calling of Jesus Christ. We are partners together with him. In Russian, it's the word tovarishi. Some people know this word, tovarish. It means comrades, that we are comrades with Jesus. We are partners with Jesus. But it's actually a business term. It means that we are his colleagues, that we serve together on the same board of, uh, uh, of elders together with Jesus, that we make decisions together with Jesus, that he is the head, the chief shepherd, but we are shepherds together with him. He is our partner in life, but we are his partner in the eternal kingdom of God. We are his colleagues. So if we are his partners, then it means that we have a common venture. We have a common business together with Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus' parents, when his mom and Joseph were looking for him, and they finally find him in the temple, and he says to them, did, did you not know that I would be about my father's business? I'm, I'm a partner with my dad in heaven. <laughs> Didn't you know that I would be exactly there where he's working? And this is where he's working. So that's why I'm here. We have a common business venture, if you will, with Jesus. We are his colleagues. We work together with him. And because we have this common venture, we share equally in the profit, and we share equally in the loss of that venture. Okay? If you're an employee, you do not share equally in the profit. Even if they tell you you do, you don't. You know, you work at Walmart, you, got, you get some stock in the company or whatever they do there, but you know the Wall family is way richer than you'll ever be. But if you're a partner, if you're a colleague, then you share equally in the profit of that business. That's why we are called co-inheritors, that we inherit the kingdom of God together with Jesus Christ, that we are his brothers. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers. So it's a family business, and our Father God is in charge of that business. And the whole business right now on the earth is the Great Commission. It's about taking this gospel to the world and saving people's lives. And it's the business that Jesus is about, and he wants us to get busy with it because he doesn't want us to be his partners. We are his partners. So if we share in the authority of the kingdom of God, then we share equally in the responsibility of the kingdom of God also. And so it says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we will give an answer for what we've done in these bodies. And if we have gold and silver and precious stones, it will pass through the fire and it will remain. But if we have wood, hay, and stubble, it will pass through the fire and nothing will remain of that reward that we might have. We are his partners, we are his colleagues. Now look at chapter 12 of Hebrews. Go back to Hebrews and look at chapter 12. All these verses here, we're going to look at them in more detail later when we get to them. But in Hebrews chapter 12, it's, it's not possible to teach Hebrews without jumping around because these things keep getting repeated and you have to be able to tie them together a little bit and remember them when you come to them later. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 8, it says, uh, but if you are without discipline, of which, you, of which all have become partakers, metaphors, the same word, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So I said that we partake equally in the profit of the kingdom of God, but also in the loss of the kingdom of God. And before we partake in the profit, if we truly are partners with Jesus, we embrace the loss 
Because the loss isn't the kind of loss that you think of as having lost everything. The loss, in a sense, if we're using business terms, is like an investment of capital that you lay down your life. Jesus said that if you're going to follow me, then you will take up your cross and you will follow me. So it's all an all-in investment of our lives. It's a loss that brings gain. You understand? It's an investment, really. A loss that brings gain is an investment. And so we are partakers in the discipline, or we are partakers in the punishment, because Jesus went through that punishment, so we are partakers of that also. And yes, this verse, and we'll talk more about it later, has, has lots of things to do with God just disciplining and teaching us in our lives on a day-to-day basis, but it has a very deep theological meaning of the cross, that Jesus took the punishment on himself, and so we are partakers of that punishment together with Jesus. We have no fear of death because we've sold our lives out for Jesus to follow him with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And if we love him with anything less, then the question in Scripture would be, do we really love him at all? Because that's the only way to, 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 love, to love God. So we partake. We are partners together with Jesus in this. And if we are not partakers of this, then it says we're illegitimate children and I don't mean to offend anybody with a cuss word, but it's not really a cuss word. It's just used like that. But it literally says we are bastards. We're not really his children. We're pretending like we're his children, but we're not really his children. And there's one thing worse, lower on the rank than a slave, and that would be to be the bastard. That he took us from slaves that we might be sons. And so this is a, like so many places in Hebrews. It's a challenge. It's not really saying you are an illegitimate child. It's saying stop acting like illegitimate children. Stop acting like he's not really your father. And embrace the participation that he's given you. Take up your cross and follow him. It's a loss that brings gain into your life. The the scripture says, and we'll come to that later, it's in Hebrew, it's not tonight, but when we get to it, it says that Jesus himself learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Now look with me at chapter 1 of Hebrews in verse 9. Hebrews 1, 9. It says, um, it's still talking about the angels. It says, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. The word companions again is this metahos. Above your comrades, above your partners, above your companions, above those who are participants in the kingdom of God. But here it's referring to the angels. And just like we saw with serving, so we see levels of companionship, okay, or levels of participation. So the angels are also called participants. They are called companions. But remember that their companionship or their participation is limited to the level of a servant, okay? They may prove to be way more faithful than any of us ever proved to be faithful to him, but it's still limited to the level of a servant. And so that means that we have more authority than angels. Well, we do, because the scripture says that they serve us, okay? Now, if I met an angel in hand-to-hand combat, I would back down, okay? (laughs) Because... Maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I'd turn out like Jacob and wrestle him all night long until he broke my hip and still not let go of him. I don't know. But there's no way we can overpower angels with our physical power. We're not smarter than angels. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about anything that we earned or deserved. We're talking about what Jesus Christ did for us and what our eternal destiny is, our heavenly calling. So here's the thing about an inheritance, okay? The kingdom of God is here and it is now, but it is also in the future. So is an inheritance. When I was about 1997, I guess it was. So when, well, it was 1997 when my father passed away. But when I was 33 years old, my father passed away. I think it was 1998 before they finished all the, the inheritance stuff. But after he passed away, my mom had died first. Yeah, two years earlier. Then my father passed away. And after they settled the whole thing, you know, he had an executor in the state and all that kind of stuff, 
I got an inheritance from him. Well, a whole lot, but I got an inheritance. It was a lot to me then. I got an inheritance from him, and that inheritance was divided equally between my brother and my sister and me, okay, exactly down the line. And my dad's friend, who was his executor, was real picky about it to make sure everything came out exactly equal on everything. And uh, so we each got this equal inheritance. And I received that inheritance when my father died. I still have that inheritance to this day. But it's not in the bank. It's not invested in anything that you could see. It's invested in human lives. Because when I received that inheritance, the Lord spoke very clearly to me that you are to take this and invest this in the kingdom of God. And we used that money. I used that money uh, in the long run, it, it almost all of it went to establishing the ministry that we had with uh, street kids and, and uh, uh, well, with street kids and homeless and, and neglected children. And the fruit of that ministry, Tanya and I still see to this day. So that's the best place to put your treasure, you know. And I'm not, I'm not saying that God would always say that you should do that. When, but whatever you're doing with your inheritance, whatever you're doing with your money, the, the end result better be that you want to see something eternal because you're not going to take it with you anyway when you die. So let there be some eternal treasure that you're investing that in. If it's your kids, your grandkids, whatever it may be. So anyway, I got that inheritance when he died. Well, you know what? When I was probably, I can't remember my age, but I'm guessing looking back, I can still see it in my mind the day I did this. I'm about eight years old and I'm snooping around the house like eight-year-old kids do. And I was always snooping and opening up everything I could find. And underneath our staircase, we had this two-story house. Underneath the staircase, I found this box with a lock on it. And I was bound and determined I was going to open that. So I'm looking for the key. And then I just pushed the button. It wasn't locked. It's open. I was like, wow. And it had files in it. And I went in there, and I found a last will and testament that my parents had written. And everything that happened when my father died when I was 33 was already written down when I was 8 and probably was written down before that. The exact same will and testament. If he dies first, which he was supposed to because he was 13 years older than mom, but he didn't. But if he dies first, everything goes to mom, 100%, kids get nothing. But then when she dies, everything goes to the three kids exactly even, and that's exactly what happened when, when my father died. So when I first found out about it, see, here's the last will and testament. When I first found out about it, I don't have it yet. I can't spend it. And praise God for that, because I would have wasted it on some really stupid toys or something. You know, and later I would have bought myself some really cool car or something, and you know how that goes. But I wasn't ready for that. But it doesn't mean I didn't have it. I found out about it. It was revealed to me like it's revealed to us from the Scripture. I have it. It is mine. And I can actually draw on it. Why do you think healing works and Christ heals our body? Why do you think he blesses us in this life? And he takes care of our financial needs and he feeds us and he clothes us and he cares for us in every way because we're already drawing on the love that he has for us. But this is nothing compared to a resurrected body that can't even get sick. It's nothing compared to the fullness of the kingdom of God. And I don't have that yet because that time hasn't come. You understand? And so we see that with the inheritance. And even the example I gave you is an example in different forms that's used in the scripture to explain the covenant, and to explain the inheritance. So it's a, an, an inheritance that's coming, but I have it already. And here's a really interesting thing. I actually had that inheritance before I discovered it when I was eight years old. Right? I actually had that inheritance before they ever wrote that will and testament. Because I know how much my parents love me. And I know the moment... They knew that my mom was pregnant, that in their minds, whether they said it or not, this is our son, and he will share in our inheritance. Because the inheritance is an inheritance of love. And if that's the way it is with earthly fathers, as Hebrews says, that make mistakes and are messed up a lot of times, how much more it is with the father of spirits. So why should we be afraid to subject ourselves to the father of spirits, to submit ourselves to him? Okay. We're only going to get through verse 1 today, but we're still not through it. Go to chapter 3 of Hebrews. Chapter 3 of Hebrews. We're still talking about this inheritance, this partakers of the heavenly calling. In chapter 3 of Hebrews, it says in verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6 says, But Christ was faithful as a son 
over his house, whose house we are. So we're going to be getting to this when we're talking about Moses, but that'll be next week. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. And then notice the if. When you see these ifs, you should underline them. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And then in verse 12, it says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers, the same word, partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, the day if you hear his voice, etc. There, So, the responsibility that we have is the responsibility of the Son. Because it says we are his house. And we'll get to it next week. But Moses is not said to be his house. He's said to be a servant of the house. And we'll get to it next week. But it's going to tell us that the one who builds the house is greater than the one who serves the house, right? The builder is the greater than the servant, and that Christ builds the house, and we are that house. And one thing that, and I'll try to remember to repeat this next week, that's important is to understand that it's talking, again, from a scriptural Old Testament standpoint, just to make this argument. It's not talking, if, if, if you will, it's not talking about the Moses who is now. Is talking about the Moses who was then, okay? Because the Moses who is now is just as much saved as you and I are, right? That all the Old Testament saints were saved just as we are saved, by faith in Jesus Christ. Just they're looking forward to Jesus Christ, and we're looking backwards to Jesus Christ. But the same faith saves us all. That's why we are called the seed of Abraham. But to make the argument and to present Moses as they see Moses, because they see Moses more as an institution than a man. You know, the law of Moses, Moses this, Moses that. They're always talking to, to Jesus about Moses when the Pharisees are tempting him about different things. Moses says this, Moses says that. And so from that standpoint, Moses is not uh, the house itself, and he's definitely not the builder of the house. He's the servant of the house. So the builder of the house is greater. But the one who is greater also has the greater responsibility. So Jesus fulfilled his responsibility. The son became a slave. And chapter 3, as we move on into it, is going to be all about us fulfilling our responsibility then. We are partakers in a heavenly calling, so we need to start growing up and acting like sons and taking responsibility for the house that he has built and taking responsibility for the inheritance that we have. And so it says in verse 6 that this is true if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And then in verse 14 it says, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So give me a couple of minutes to talk about the beginning of our insurance. Assurance. Maybe you remember this word in Greek, it's hypostasis. It means substance. We talked a lot about it. That, that the substance of God, that Jesus is the image or the character of this substance of God. Epostasis in Greek means substance. It's a really pregnant theological term used, used in Scripture, and it's used a lot in, in Hebrews, well, way more than in other places. Well, that is actually in verse 14. Verse 14. That's the word where we see assurance, where it says assurance. That's the same word as substance. So it literally says if we hold fast the beginning of our substance firm until the end. Now, you've got to put on your thinking caps. The word our, depending on what English translation you have, it says our assurance. That's added by the translators to make the sentence more clear. But it doesn't necessarily make it more clear. It's not in the original. What it says in the original is if we hold fast the beginning of substance firm until the end. So what is the beginning of substance? What could that possibly mean? Well, because 
that, phrase, that word is used a lot in Hebrews, it's really not difficult to understand what it means. And it's a simple and a beautiful truth. As you go through Hebrews, you come to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Most of you know what it says there. We already looked at it, and we'll look at it again. It says, faith is the substance, hypostasis. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith, and I'm not going to finish it out. We're just going to take that phrase. Faith, faith is the substance of everything we hope for. What is it that we hope for? Well, when I'm an eight-year-old little boy, actually, I didn't hope for a thing because I didn't even understand what all that was. It actually scared me more that my parents were going to die, and why'd they write all those words down there? But if I had understood what an inheritance was and money and all that kind of stuff, well, that's what I hope for. I hope for an inheritance. I hope to be raised from the dead. It's not the kind of hope where it's an empty hope. It's a confidence. It's, it's a confident hope. I know what Christ is going to do when he comes. And I have this confident hope in me. But what is the, the substance of that hope? So the substance, if you remember when we talked about God, it means the invisible or the transcendent or the heavenly reality of a God that you cannot see. He is invisible, but the reality is revealed in Christ. He, Jesus Christ, is the reality of the invisible God. Okay? So you can actually stick the word reality in here also. That's why the translators of New American Standard stuck the word assurance in there. But assurance just doesn't do it for me. <laughs> the reality. If I hold fast, it says, the beginning of reality the beginning of substance. And the beginning of substance is called faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. I don't have them right now, but I believe God. I have faith in God. And so faith is trusting in Jesus. Faith and trust are the same thing. Faith and faithfulness are the same thing. We've got a lot of English words, but it's all the same thing. If I trust in Jesus... If my faith is placed in him, not in the fear of death, if I fear God and I fear him alone, and if I remain faithful to the heavenly calling that he's put on my life and the partnership that I have together with Jesus, then that faith, if I hold fast unto that faith, then I am truly a partner with Jesus Christ. It's faith. It's simple faith. It comes by hearing, and it, and it, it, it grows by doing. The reality of the eternal and radiant glory that we have. We have it in its beginning. We don't see it all, but we have the beginning of it. And we hold it fast as a light until the coming of Jesus Christ. You see, our partnership in the kingdom is what's called eschatological. It has its fulfillment only in the end. Just like my uh, inheritance was fulfilled only in the end. Not on the day I found out about it. Not on the day the will was written. And so our inheritance is fulfilled only in the end. And the perfect profit of the kingdom is only going to come to me in the end. You know, anybody that starts a business knows that you're going to lose money before you make money. It's the truth. Any church ministry that you want to start, before you see any fruit from it or any blessing from it, you have to invest money real live money that people donate to get that thing going, right? So you have to invest if you want to see a profit. Well, here's the thing about being a Christian. Sometimes we're in such a hurry to get our profit. Do you remember the story about a boy who was in a real hurry to get his inheritance? Well, that didn't turn out very well for him because he took it and he squandered it on prostitutes and on gambling and everything else, and he had nothing left at the end of the day, the prodigal son. So we need to slow down and not be in such a rush to get everything because the inheritance isn't going to come in its full fullness until Jesus Christ comes back. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus said. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Keep your eyes on Jesus, keep your eyes on, your, on the prize, and keep focus on what is going on before us. One more verse concerning this participation. Hebrews 6.4, it says... Uh, Hebrews 6, 4, it says, and, and this is a warning that I won't explain right now. We'll get to it later. Strongest, sternest warning in the book. In Hebrews 6, 4, it says, For in the case of those 
who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Wow. After hearing and understanding what this word partakers means, it's the same word here. So this is describing what what a real Christian is supposed to be, who we really are. It's saying about us here in verse 4 that we have been enlightened. We've been enlightened. We're not stupid. We're not in the dark. God has opened up his truth to us. We've been enlightened. We've tasted of the heavenly gift. It's just a taste. But once you've tasted it, you know more is coming. And we've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. You are the Holy Spirit's partner in business. You are the Holy Spirit. Yarrington Vineyard Fellowship is the Holy Spirit's concern, his business partnership for the town of Yarrington. It's not the only one. There's other churches here, but it's one of them. And we work together with the Holy Spirit to accomplish the will of God in this place. We make a, a, go back to to chapter 3, verse 1. It says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the word consider, uh, well, it means consider, (laughs) but uh, in the Greek, it's an extra strong form of consider. It means to focus on the tiniest details. It's like a microscope type word. I mean, really focus in on Jesus. Really focus in on Jesus because he's the apostle and he's the high priest of our confession. So I'm going to end with this real short. Jesus is the apostle of our confession. An apostle is someone who is sent. The son became a slave. He is sent. He's the apostle sent from heaven of our confession. It says, hold on. The word confession in the Greek means to say the same thing. Okay? It means to say the same thing. It really means that in English. If somebody confesses in court to a crime or confesses to the police to a crime, he's admitting the truth of the accusation. He's saying the same thing. But this confession isn't a confession to a crime. This is confession unto salvation. I'm confessing what God says about me. I'm confessing the truth of salvation in my life. So Jesus is the apostle of that confession. He's the beginning of that confession. And he's the high priest of that confession. What does a high priest do? He presents the subjects of God unto God in holiness, right? So the slaves become the son. And we speak what God speaks. And we saw this verse, we'll come to it again next week in chapter 3, that we should be encouraging one another. That's a big theme in Hebrews, to encourage one another, not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Because here's the thing about a confession. A confession is not something, the very essence of the word means that other people are saying the same thing too. It's something that we confess together. It's the truth of Jesus Christ. And when we confess together as husband and wife, as parents and children, as a church, as community of churches, that confession just gains power in our lives. It has so much, it's so much more effective to accomplish the will of God. Because we, who used to be slaves, were preaching a gospel of freedom to people. You know what people want today? It's all they want. They just want freedom. They want to know peace in their lives. They want to be saved. They just don't know how to be saved. And they've tried everything. And our confession is the confession of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this evening, and I know there's a, a lot there in that one verse, Lord, but I pray that in this, this picture of participation, that we have been made your partners, that you are not ashamed to call us your brothers, and that this is a legally established relationship, because by your blood, you made this covenant with us, Lord. And you stripped Satan of all of his power. And he does not wield that fear of death over us anymore. I pray that you'd fill us with the courage of the Holy Spirit. That you'd fill us with the strength of the Holy Spirit. That you would fill us with the love of God on the inside. Because we are your partners, Lord. And like partners, we're, we're telling you, we, we need your help. 
You're asking us to go. You're asking us to do this, Lord. We need to see your glory in our home as husband and wife. We need to see your glory in our family as parents, as grandparents. And Lord, we need, we need you to partner with us. We need your help. You said, Jesus, that I will not leave you like orphans, but I will send you another comforter, a helper who will come alongside you to help you. Lord, I thank you for this partnership we have with you, that you serve us and we serve you. You've loved us, and so we love you, Lord. And I just pray that you would open our eyes to focus on Jesus. Really, really focus on Jesus. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvinionfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.